Inflation is up, unemployment is down. Wages are up, the share market has been tanking, there's a rental crisis across most of the country, interest rates are rising for the first time in 10 years, and negative headlines about the property market seem to be everywhere you look. How can we make sense of all this? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecast report, which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Interest rates generally rise when the economy is strong, but with all the other negativity around, consumer confidence is at its lowest since April 2020. What does this mean for the property market? We've invited Eliza Rowan, Head of Residential Research Australia at CoreLogic, to join us today to help us unravel what on the face of it appears to be a lot of conflicting information. Now, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast, Eliza. It's been a while, but I think this is your seventh visit. Um, There's so much hype in the media at the moment over rising interest rates and falling prices and all the rest of it. We're just hoping that you can help us all calm the farm. I'll do my best. (laughs) Thanks for coming along. (laughs) Thank you for having me again. And Chris and Veronica, it's great to be here. Look, I think, I think, I mean, in one way, I mean, there is a bit of a, you know, panic setting in, but I mean, a lot of it is sort of sound and, you know, there is a bit of fear in the market, you know, in terms of, um, you know, mortgages are increasing for the first time um, and quite big increases, you know, in terms of the RBA rises, especially in the US market. So there's lots going on there. And I think it's important to sort of really talk it through. So what, if you could have to sum it up in a few sentences, I know it's really hard, but What's your sort of take on where we're at in, say, June 2022 and how far that's moved from, say, where we were late last year, I guess? In terms of the housing market, growth rates peaked about March of 2021 and have been moderating since that time against affordability constraints, Mm. Um, people just naturally not being as willing to pay more and more for property. But the downturn has been cemented by a lift in interest rates. Um, I think for those who are less familiar with uh, finance and the way that economics is is kind of used to influence demand is thinking of interest as the price of a mortgage. So if you think about it in basic supply and demand terms, when the price of something goes up, demand for it goes down. So whether it's because people can't borrow as much money or they're just dissuaded from buying in a higher interest rate environment, that's basically the relationship that we come back to when we look at interest rates in the property market. As you say, the the interest rate rise is is of strong economic conditions. So that's Mm. something that I think really underpins serviceability. When you come into a housing market downturn, you need to consider two major factors, which are equity and serviceability. Um, If Equity Mm. is falling, but serviceability remains strong. It doesn't really matter that homeowners have assets that are falling in value temporarily. If uh, serviceability is falling off, but prices are going up, then that's kind of okay too, because if people really need to sell, then they can do so in a rising market. It's Mm. when both serviceability and equity positions are 
deteriorating that you've kind of got to worry. Uh, I don't necessarily think that that would be the mainstream case for the housing market. Um, but no doubt, I think between price growth, um, days on market, listings volumes, all of our metrics are corroborating the start of a downturn concentrated in our biggest capital cities at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. You said, um, you know, interest rates, the, you know, the price you pay for the debt and then the higher the price is, the less you want to take it on. Um, you also, you know, made a, a comment there around borrowing capacity. And this is a is something that people forget about is that, you know, how much money you can borrow also determines, you know, how much money you can spend, basically. And that's what's been pushing prices up a lot because borrowing capacities have been going up as interest rates go down. As interest rates go up, um, borrowing capacities go down. So you can actually borrow less money. And this is a big thing. If the RBA increased interest rates from, you know, zero, let's call it, 0.1 to say 2%, which is, you know, what's starting to be, get a feel of what it may do. Um, and that's almost a 20% reduction in borrowing capacities. Um, so it's it's a big reduction in how much people can borrow. And so that's another thing that's, that's, that's coming that um, isn't factored into prices today because that rates haven't increased yet. Borrowing capacities haven't re reduced, but as they increase, borrowing capacities will reduce. So that's something that we're likely to see play out as well. In terms of how that unfolds, though, I'm, I'm curious because there's been, you know, data, I don't know where that data is from and I don't know the amounts, right, the quantum of the data, but there's been talk of the fact that people, not everybody borrows to their maximum capacity. So does that mean that people then borrow to their maximum capacity, whereas previously in the lower interest rate environment they didn't? Is is that uh, what so, they do or do um, they end up actually reducing their, their borrow? They still borrow under capacity and so therefore they still borrow proportionally less. Well, look, I mean, probably only about one in five borrowers borrow more than six times their income, which would probably be your max capacity or close to mm. it, right? Um, that had been increasing. So that increased from one in five to say one in four, but it's likely to be maybe even uh, those buyers can't spend that much anymore right mm. and so that a quarter of buyers can't spend that much they're going to have to reduce their budgets but you're right you know the other 80 percent or 70 percent of borrowers may have to stretch up to their max and so you are just going to see you're not going to see a reduction in demand of all buyers because not all buyers are spending to their max but absolutely a a, poor, a big portion are going to have to reduce their budgets as interest rates go up and so that's something that's you know definitely need to you know in areas where you've got a lot of people stretching a lot of people going six times. Um, those are the areas and had done that traditionally as well in the last few years. Um, so, you know, young families that have, you know, a lot of new high LVR loans, a lot of more than six times, they won't be able to refinance as well because that's too, not only do you need the, that income to buy the property, but two years later when you want to refinance, you have to service under new rules, not the old rules when you purchased. And um, you're going to find issues there with coming off fixed rates, et cetera. So, uh, it's not doom and gloom. It's just something to really for people to think through is, yeah, interest rates are going up, but also borrowing capacities are reducing. Yeah. Eliza, do you have any data on, on you know, what segments of the market are more vulnerable? Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, this is like what, what Chris is talking to is a historic cyclical pattern that usually plays out in Sydney and Melbourne. So it's the high end in the central markets that tend to see declines first. Even looking at the combined capital cities, in the three months to May, the top 25% of values fell by about 1.5%. Um, the low end of the market was still growing in value. So that's something where limited borrowing capacity 
might force buyers to look to the next affordable market that they can get into. So, for example, across Sydney, it's been um, the northern beaches, inner city, Sydney, Piedmont, um, those kind of higher-end lifestyle areas that have seen declines first. And then as the cycle matures and more people are impacted by credit constraints, interest rates continue to rise, the downturn ripples out across the metropolitan. Um, I think it's interesting at the moment because you've got not only rising interest rates, but some banks have also reduced their debt-to-income ratios that they're willing to lend on recently, with uh, APRA kind of doing that bank-by-bank consultation. And so ANZ, for example, has come down from uh, nine times uh, income to seven. So that's going (laughs) to put quite a, a hammer on borrowing capacity, particularly for, say, multiple property owners who might be taking advantage of those kind of DTIs. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So we're actually seeing that. We're seeing, um, you know, I was even at the conference this week, you know, with the head of one of the banks sitting down having dinner with. And, um, yeah, the, the APRA really uh, behind the scenes are putting a lot of pressure on them with any loans over six times. Um, and they've got to have a, a bigger capital weighting. It means that they have to price it more expensive. They can also have to um, only have a portion of their loans under that sort of higher um, DTI. And so, Absolutely, that's um, borrowing capacity is a form, but also if you are looking to borrow more than six times, like close to your capacity, um, you're going to find pricing is not going to be great um, and you're going to find it hard to actually get those loans because a lot of banks are going to start really um, not going to want to do those real high debt loans. So it's Yeah, really I think for well. some markets, and APRA kind of pointed this out as well, that falling prices can be good in the sense of it will reduce the DTI lending, especially in an environment yep. where, you know, wages, albeit slowly, <laughs> are going up. Mm-hmm. And some people will have accumulated a lot of savings over the course of the past couple of years as well. So their savings might be representing more of a deposit as a property. So for people who want to make that kind of counter-cyclical move, it, it could actually be a really interesting, really good time to buy. Well, that's usually the best time to buy is when everyone's not buying. But that's the thing, isn't it? Nobody tends to buy when everybody's not buying. But also there's a challenge in, in, um, I find the challenge anyway, is that there's less quality stock at those times as well. So you do get a reduction in listings, although, and you do get a reduction in sales volumes, which actually makes it look like there's more listings, but there's often a higher proportion of crap out there. (laughs) So... It's all fun and games, isn't it? Actually, a bit of a sideways move on this. Some of these APRA moves um, and also just general interest rate uh, increases and the impact on borrowing capacity. We do have a rental crisis in this country and it does appear that this has been brewing for some years and it's really biting Mm. now. Will rising interest rates really um, exacerbate this problem? Or will investors who are foolishly buying just for negative gearing suddenly think, oh, great, I can mm. save more tax? So usually property prices and rents have broadly moved together. Um, but it is interesting we're in a time now where rents have been rising pretty consistently against a softer housing market. Gross yields have been rising as a result. For the past four months now, rents mm. have, have outpaced growth in purchasing values. So I think in areas where investors can still get in, have a good yield and not get anywhere near those DTI limits, there could actually be a opportunity and, and a bit of an investment strategy there. But the rental demand is really interesting because 
Lucy Ellis gave an address at the UDIA National Congress the other week and showed off some research that they'd done within the RBA about household formation falling through the course of the pandemic. So average number of people per household fell. And the proportion of people living in share housing dropped off pretty significantly. So this suggests that rental demand has largely been domestic and obviously through COVID, and it's also (laughs) been reactionary. Um, People could afford to break up their households and get their own space because at the onset of the pandemic, there was a bit of a shock to rental demand initially. So in some Mm. instances, rentals were cheaper. Now that's kind of all corrected, but what remains is that people are reactionary. So we could see the reformation of share houses, for example, over the next couple of years in response to rising rents, which were up about 10% over the past year. It's just the highest rent growth we've seen since the early 2000s. It's extraordinary. Uh, It is, isn't it? Because rents are usually capped by incomes, aren't they? I mean, in in a way that you know, you could borrowing capacity is kept really by the interest rates as we're talking about. You know, if you don't earn more money, you can't pay more rent. Um, yeah. it, it is interesting too, anecdotally on the ground, we've just suddenly noticed some of our clients that had uh, apartments um, coming up for releasing in the inner west in particular and the numbers going through open houses and, and, the, and multiple offers and multiple applications. And we haven't seen that for a couple of years, right? And it was really interesting and it was like, why? And we'd heard anecdotally it was because of that sort of the share households had broken down. A lot of these people had gone back to live with their parents through various lockdowns and then they're, now they're saying, bugger that, we're like, get us out of here, but we don't want to go back into share living. Yeah. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Especially but, as work from home has or at least that hybrid model has become mm. mainstream, mm. people would rather a home office than a housemate in their second bedroom. So yeah. mm. um, that relates to a lot of people's experience and then having uh, Lucy Ellis present that kind of affirmed the narrative with some data and the fact that that breakdown in household formation added to housing demand to the tune of about 140,000 dwellings over the COVID period, which largely offsets the demand that you would actually get from international migration, overseas migration. Mm -hmm. So the challenge there is that rental markets have tightened up significantly and we're only just welcoming back overseas arrivals. It was February that we loosened the travel restrictions around COVID. So mm. with migration coming back on top of tight rental markets, I think there's going to be a period of pain for renters and a period of um, opportunity for investors. Yeah, and that, I mean, I guess we had a um, massive amount of first-home buyers buying as well, right? So the last two years we've had, you know, say three, mm. 400,000, um, let's call it, and that's, you know, a lot of first-home buyers were renters before they bought their house. I mean, some have been living with their parents and um, saving the deposit, but a lot of exited the rental market and now become, you know, buying. And um, I mean, that would be taken. A lot of them probably potentially buy off investors as well. So it's like a double mm. one investment property less and then they're one rental less. Potentially, so yeah. net net's probably the same. But um, yeah, I mean, if, if that didn't happen, then, you know, you'd find that the the, the rental market would even be stronger, right? And as, as less first home buyers buy, that means they more have to rent. Plus you've got migration. And so you could easily see this um, tightening of uh, rental markets even further and that's just going to keep on pushing rents up but I think you're really interesting you've made a point there where shared houses yeah they do break down 
because of the COVID, um, because it's more affordable. But then, you know, if you've got fuel prices going up, you've got <laughs> food and you go, look, I've got this one bedroom apartment and it's 550 bucks a week. If I go move in with a mate, it's 350 Those sort of things will start coming back on the table, won't they? Because um, it's their only option. Yeah, exactly. I think people will just have to. I also think, you know, to your point about first home buyers, we've seen about 140,000 places that went to home builder and construction pipelines have been blown out because of what's happening in that space at the moment between material const- uh, supply constraints, labor supply constraints, and just the massive amount of work that's on. Those people who are waiting for their new homes to be built have to live somewhere as well. So that could be mm. something that's adding to rental demand in the short term. Um, and exactly that. I think, you know, it gets to a point, especially now, because we've got headline inflation up about 5% over um, annually. And and the non-discretionary items, so the stuff that people can't really cut back on, like energy, transport, uh, food, those things have risen at twice the rate of, of non-discretionary items. Mm. Uh, sorry, of discretionary mm. items rather. So. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, a real kind of pain point for renters especially, and rents contribute a lot to that um, inflation figure as well. So um, I think we will probably see more shared household formations, particularly as that overseas migration flow starts to pick back up again as well. That's interesting because I was going to ask you, you know, how long – should it take for interest rate rises to have an impact on consumer spending? Mm-hmm. What you're, and, but a lot of this inflation isn't purely a result of spending, is, is it? And then you've got what you're saying there about discretionary mm. spending versus non-discretionary. That's quite scary really because you think, well, if you can't cut back on your non-discretionary and that's had double the inflation of discretionary, I'm getting, all, you know, getting it right, <laughs> Um then the impact, therefore, of rising interest rates is really going to take a lot longer to take effect, isn't it? Yeah, look, I think so. We do see some of the major banks are already talking about when the interest rate cycle starts to normalise again and starts down again. And some Mm. people are putting that or some organisations are putting that at around um, late 2023, early 2024. So, I mean, we've got to remember this is all part of a cycle. The RBA trying to get the economy mm. to crash. They're trying to get inflation back to target of 2 to 3%. Um, housing is a big way of doing that. Um, and, and as you say, that some of that discretionary spending is a big way of doing that. Um, but overall, it's not, it doesn't necessarily spell doom and gloom for the economy or the housing market or the financial system. It's kind of a, a temporary pain to get back to that inflation target. Yeah, it is interesting. A lot of people don't know that that's what a lot of the the banks and a lot of, you know, Jardin came out on Friday. Um, Carlos, who's been on here, was, you know, did a whole report on this. Um, And you're right. Like, it's it's a lot of people are thinking that rates are going to go really fast and hard. The RBA's probably realised they've left left it a little bit too late. Um, Mm. They've got to play catch up. That's what the 50 basis points was. Maybe it's another 50 or whatever next, next month. But let's get it under control. And then maybe economy starts stalling, you know, because of the pressure on households to cut back spending, the wealth effect, et cetera, um, rates normalise and assuming there's no crisis, um, maybe rates have to fall if we start to get, you know, slower um, increases in unemployment and, um, you know, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's not like it's going to – they're not forecasting rates to just keep increasing for, for four or five years. A lot of people think they're going to potentially stop sometime next year. 
um, rather than just keep going up. Did you watch the um, – there was a Lee Sales on 7.30 report earlier this week and, and bearing in mind obviously this episode will come out in a few weeks after we're interviewing you, um, but uh, she interviewed Philip Rudd. Uh, sorry, Philip Philip, Um Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Philip Lowe, the governor of the RBA. Did you watch that? I've seen snippets. That interview? Yeah. It was really interesting. I mean, he doesn't often give interviews um, and he, he really took great pains to try to understand, to explain sort of these basic fundamentals and I found it quite interesting that he was, my take on it was that, look, when we said we weren't going to raise rights, raise rates, thank you, raise yeah, rates yeah. until 2024 and everyone ran off and made decisions and, and based yeah. all their their confident, you know, their, their level of confidence on that, you know, we were saying as long as things don't change, you know, and, and that's the bit that didn't seem to make any headlines. And I, to be honest, I didn't pick up on that nuance either. You know, I was thinking, wow, they're, they're pretty confident coming out. They're saying that they're not going to do something. Well, that, that's pretty, com you know, we should be able to base some decisions on that. But clearly you can't, right? you got to base your decisions on other things. But the other thing too I thought was interesting, it was like, well, we're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep raising these rates until it has effect. And then we might overshoot the mark a little bit. We might have to then drop them a little bit as well. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of... It's a trial and it's, it's basically trial and error every month, isn't it, really? And every month is a good point. Other central banks don't meet as frequently. So we do have the luxury of seeing mm. um, pretty quick adjustments to monetary policy conditions if, if need be. The other thing that RBA was stressing throughout the rate cutting phase of the cycle was the importance of um, lending standards and assessment. Mm. I mean, you are going to have a much better time if, if you can really conservatively borrow. That's why APRA came in uh, October last year from increasing yeah. the serviceability mm. assessment buffer from 2.5% to 3% because if we do see that 3% cash rate rise, that's probably going to be passed on in full to variable rates. Yeah. Um, so, that, that you know, that's important to keep in mind. Um, and that... Just on that mm. point, Eliza, with APRA, I mean... You know, we when when markets getting out of control, we always say, "Oh, do something to slow it down, right?" Mm -hmm. um, and you know, they're like, "Well, we can't increase interest rates because um, we want to keep the economy growing out of COVID, right? To keep reducing unemployment, so we get wage increases, right?" So what we'll do is we'll get APRA to come in and we'll increase the buffer, right? Um, and we were very vocal on this. We said that's not going to do anything. What it's not going what's going to slow the market down is when interest rates jump up. And then we all got shocked a little bit how much interest rates jumped at the start of this year or the, the conversation, the fixed rates jumps because of inflation really took off around the world. Um, but what's your thoughts there? I mean, that's the obvious tool that if we do see, um, and I agree with, with Northern Beaches, we've already seen prices fall 10 plus percent, um, if not more, um, in some suburbs. Um, especially the poorer properties have really come back uh, aren't selling and uh you're probably seeing some things in the in the west veronica you know certain properties have probably come back a little bit um and yeah do you know actually absolutely but you know and eliza maybe you can put some insight to shed some insight in this i was just looking i did a presentation for my clients i recorded it yesterday and i'm really looking at um sales volumes listing numbers and that sort of stuff and yep. and the things that do correlate with falling prices versus the things that don't necessarily correlate with with falling prices and sq um sqm has um it's great little charts about volumes sales volumes and listing sorry listings volumes over the last 12 years and it breaks it down into proportion that 180 days or more 
you know, 90 days or more, yep. what, 60 days or more, and 40, uh, 30 days or more, whatever. The, if you look at that, the 180 days or more definitely expands. It's visible. You can see with every downturn that proportion of the listings on the market absolutely ex- extends. And so same between sort of the next bar, which is 120 mm-hmm. days, right? Yeah. Those two bars See, are bigger. There's more stock in those bars, but the actual yep. you look at the the sort of the up to sixty or ninety days. Yeah, those bars roughly look fairly consistent in their length, right? So the, yep. the volume of property on the market at any given time in those bars seems to be quite consistent, regardless of what the market's doing. So what is it that takes longer to sell in a slow market? It's the shit property. It's the shit property and it's the overpriced property. Mm. And so what that means a, yeah. a hot market is forgiving. Everything gets competitive. Buyers fight over crap they would never touch with a barge pole in a slow market. And so the problem with that is that that skews a lot of data. It's a little bit like also the the top to the twenty five, the top twenty fifth percentile is the segment of the market across the country, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, um, that has had the biggest falls in the last three months. Right? Yeah. Um, Like you were saying earlier, Eliza. So of course. With every fall of a, of a multi-million dollar property in terms of value, that's going to actually have a bigger impact on the aggregate data, right? Um, yeah. So the high end, I, I think that's really interesting, by the way, that, um, that looking at the length of the, the listing or how stale it kind of gets in a downturn, yeah. mm. that's definitely one I'd love to have a look at with our data. Um, the, the, the high end is basically more volatile. So mm. it sees higher highs. It also sees lower lows. Um, yeah. In February of 2020, the RBA put out a research paper looking at the basically the different nature of different value segments and theorised that the high end is more sensitive because people are more stretched when they're borrowing in those areas. So changes yeah. in the credit environment um, create deeper declines at the high end of the market. That's true for Sydney and Melbourne. It's true for the combined capitals. Um, and it's something that we're seeing pretty consistently at the moment. Um, investors are another one that don't uh, tend to pay down their debt as quickly as owner occupiers. So mm-hmm. they, those yeah. those markets can be a little more sensitive to to changes in credit as well. Yeah. Um, but long run, but the first home buyer, but also the first home buyers. But I guess they were such a small proportion of their total market, isn't oh. it? That's the problem, isn't it? They're like one percent of the total total dwellings is is first home buyers on a, on an annual basis. Yes. Right? So so therefore, the very fact that they are more vulnerable to interest rate rises and they're more vulnerable, you know, they're potentially with negative equity if they've had 5% deposits and things like that, they, they would be under pressure. But I guess because it's such a small percentage of the entire market, it's not going to be reflected in the numbers, My right? understanding is that first home buyers are a little more vulnerable in the first few years of their mortgage, but they actually tend to yeah. pay down debt more quickly. So yeah. they tend to Absolutely. be a more kind of secure segment of the market as, as it matures over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other thing is like not every first home buyer is going to be borrowing to that maximum capacity and to your point chris i think i agree like when we first saw apra's intervention come in in 20 um (laughs) sorry i'm thinking last year it was this whole (laughs) past few years it's just been one great blur um but october last year at the time we thought oh that's kind of underwhelming now it's critical because actually interest rates could be going up by that much so it was critical Mm. that people were assessed at that slightly higher buffer 
Um, and Unfortunately, that was a little bit late, right? Because it's only assessed people from November, I'm pretty sure. It was like November, December. Um, and a lot of people, their pre-approvals went through till January. And that's when like, they had to get a set reassessed. Um, so it was only a small number of buyers. And then those buyers all got freaked out anyway because they started to see fixed rates jump in January, February. Um, and then they reduced their budgets. Um, the, the thing what we noticed with first-time buyers is the people who are actually um, out buying are the people who are quite in stable jobs, are quite confident of their incomes in the next few years, have been saving money pretty well for the last few years um, and are back themselves. Basically, you know, you don't, if you're, if you're really worried about your job, you haven't been able to save, you're worried about your bills, you, you don't, you're out in the property market, right? And so generally, we're, we're not seeing a massive slowdown in the number of people wanting to buy. But what we are seeing is they're very concerned and they are nervous and they're worried about interest rates and they're worried about buying something that may be cheaper in the future. Um, and whereas last year they, they were worried about prices increase. If I don't get in now, right, the FOMO, it's the opposite. But they're still there. Like they still want to buy. They haven't, for, sudden, for example, just said we never want to buy. They're just being really picky and patient. But they're still probably what, – what's also saying is a lot of people are getting wage increases. Um, and so when I said at the start of this is where – borrowing capacities are falling well that's assuming there's no increase in income if you get a five or a ten percent increase in your income absolutely you get a massive bump in your borrowing capacity um, and that i think is going to offset the reduction in borrowing capacities but do you think APRA is going to unwind that decision you know because if interest rates jump two percent um do they still need to have a three percent buffer after a two percent increase in mm -hmm. interest rates um they could have an argument to say well we've already protected you from you know, 2%, why don't we reduce the 3% buffer down to 2% um, to basically stimulate the property market, especially if you start to see these falls start to cascade through the whole market and the wealth effects start to kick in. Do you think something like that's likely next year, Eliza? Um, it'll probably depend on debt to income um, at, at the aggregate level because part mm. of the reason these interventions or, or these recommendations around DTIs came into place was because through 2021 we got to a period where housing debt was growing faster than income and that's not mm, a sustainable yeah. situation. So I imagine they'll be keeping a pretty close eye on debt to income ratios. As you noted, Chris, the portion of new borrowers on DTIs of six or more hit a peak of about 25% in the December quarter. That actually came down yep. through the March quarter. So already we see the effect yep. of these kinds of interventions uh, working. And absolutely, APRA is dynamic. Yep. I imagine that they can repeal that if they think that um, lending is at a more sustainable level. Yeah, it makes sense as well. If you think about like if, if um, when you were confident the rates are going to be say 2 or 3%, you borrow up, you know, you take on a lot of debt. And that's what's caused prices to go up. But when you're worrying, when you're seeing fixed rates jump the fours and fives, you go, look, I really want to take this stretch. Let's just be a bit more conservative. Let's just buy an apartment, not let's buy the house. Or let's not go for the, the you know, really get our dream house. Let's just get a house that's going to suit us for five years. And so we've already seen that is that buyers want to reduce their budgets because they're worried about future rates, even though they could spend a lot more. Um, so their borrowing capacities haven't reduced. So that, that sort of makes sense as well. I think they'll slower the market. The, the more concern around the market, the less people want to borrow. Um, so going forward, I mean, what do you sort of suggest? Do you, do you think that, um, you know, this is going to spread a lot to the regions as well and you're going to see not only a capital city um, because the regions have gone up a lot, A, because of COVID, but B, because of low interest rates um, and potentially the return to work. How do you see it playing out in the regions 
Um, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to know what you guys think as well, because I think there's a lot of unknowns right now. So it's yeah. not as if we can go to historical growth patterns and say, well, historically the regions have been slow and steady because, as as you mentioned, yeah. through this um, cycle they actually outperform mm. the capital cities. We're seeing a trend at the moment where what's what's showing up in the data is that growth rates are softening across the combined regions, but they're not in negative territory yet, whereas capital city mm. values are pretty much flat falling in Sydney and Melbourne. But in some of the larger regional centres like Geelong, Newcastle, they've actually posted their first declines through the month of May since 2020. So they've started moving into that negative territory, not as much of a lag as we would usually expect between the capital city and the major regional centres. So it could be if people have been stretching themselves more to get into the regional markets, then they could show more volatility through this cycle as well. It also could be potentially that if people have been leaving the, the major capitals because of affordability and they've been looking at these other big, big regional centres and they think, oh, I don't need to do that anymore. I might be able to stick around and prices fall in Sydney or Melbourne. I can still buy there. You know, potentially that's one of the issues there because if they're moving outside where they really want to be for affordability reasons – then the very first thing they're going to do is go, hang on a minute, I don't need to do that anymore. And we see that on a micro level and a suburb level, you know. Yeah. Um, you even see it within a suburb. I don't have to buy on the main road anymore. I can buy on a nice street. So if, if people are only going to move to Newcastle or Wollongong or Geelong or somewhere, for instance, because they think that they can't afford to be in uh, where they prefer to be, whether they're, you know, moving away from Sydney or Melbourne to get there. Yeah. Um, they may turn around. But also I think that there's unproven, and we we uh, interviewed Simon Kustemaker uh, recently. We were talking with him about this migration away from the cities and the working from home and the hybrid model and, and the expected U-turn that's going to come from some regional centres as well as people sort of think actually long-term it doesn't work for us anymore. So we don't know how that's going to play out, of course, because COVID's done weird things. It's accelerated a whole bunch of change and some of it may have overshot the mark. Like, like some of the prices in some of these regional centres probably has overshot the mark. You know, is there really the fundamentals and, and the, the you know, the newly formed local market, is it going to be strong enough to sustain uh, those prices at the levels that they've, they've achieved? If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Yeah, that's and I would imagine there's some areas that are more vulnerable than mm-hmm. others. Have you got any research on that? Well, as I say, I think that there are risks of those major regional centres becoming more volatile. Uh, I think you make a really good point about the withdrawal of demand, not necessarily people buying up in the regions and then being like, well, I'm going to move back. But as you say, people who may have been looking at regional Australia might not have to yeah. now if, if prices are falling in Sydney. So I, I think it's just going to be a wait and see the impact of the low interest rate environment and the change in the profile of the buyer on regional Australia, even in some of the yep. more traditionally affordable 
regional areas, um, you know, like Ballarat and Bendigo and, you know, areas like that that have have just seen extraordinary price gains. I mean, overall yeah. regional yeah. value, combined regional Australian values are up around 40% since COVID. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 That's nuts. Yeah, and some some regions, which are more the commutable regions, are up a lot yeah. more than that, right? Um, and uh, interesting combined, even the sort of second, third tier, I guess, outside of capital city, I reckon these building issues are are going to the costs of building have obviously jumped up a lot. Mm. Um, I know you've got some info on on how much and and things like that you've seen, but there's such a big pipeline; they're already out there building a lot, but. A lot of them have got a lot of work to already, you know, locked in, you know, more than ever. Um, and so it's not like even if there is a slowdown in building, we're still going to see massive construction going on for the for the next few years. Um, maybe they're, they're, they're going to struggle to be able to sign people up because people are going to say, I'm going to put it on hold if I have to pay that. And, um, you know, they're going to be less likely to go and do builds when they're not sure about the prices. But how do you think that's going to play out? Because it's, it's, it's a huge part of the market. If, if you can't buy a new house, um, in the regions, for example, um, you're not going to move there, especially if you have to wait two years to build it, right? Um, you're going to just buy something that's established, et cetera. So how do you see the new building dynamics playing out over the next few years? And um, yeah. Yeah. So I actually think that this could be in a perverse way. It's something that kind of offsets price declines because yep. Yep. <laughs> the, the construction pipeline has been so blown out in terms of cost and timelines. There are anecdotes, yep. especially yep. in WA, which not only had home builder, but additional state government grants to incentivize yep, new builds, right. which in retrospect is like, what were we thinking with this short-term unlimited scheme? Mm. Now on top of yeah. a global um, inflationary environment for the construction sector, we've created a, a domestic one with builders on fixed term or fixed rate contracts and and this has been this boom is is um presenting the risk of of actually delivering no profit to builders as a result yeah well that's what they're calling it a profitless boom and and when i was watching something the other night something like 160 building companies have folded um over is it the last 12 like is it a ridiculously high amount of building companies folding and of course now you've got this situation where if you are on a fixed price contract and just turning up to build whatever you've agreed to build you're going to be losing money they're trying to pay people to get out of the contracts and it's a nightmare and so yeah it's it's no good having your books full if you you literally are losing money on every every yeah, na- you're having nail to in. the cost on, on increased so we're, uh, i think the builders are now having those conversations with their mm. client and they're saying, look, I know you, we signed this and we said we build it for this, but no one could expect things that were, would change. You don't want us to go bust, especially if we've started this build. Um, we're <laughs> going to have to do a variation um, because, you know, it's, it's no one really wants to half, is halfway, halfway through a build and the builder to leave. That's on small scale builds. You know, th- we've got... You know, you've got like the me- uh, Metricons of the, of the world. You know, they've had to go to their shareholders to for cash injection um and there's other of those project home builders that have you know how many dozens of houses and 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 or hundreds even some of them that under construction that are at risk if they fold they're at risk of not being i mean they can't renegotiate with the first home buyer on a fixed price contract on a on a package you know on a house and land package you know there's just no more money in some of that with some of those people well i think they will i think they will i think they will because the reality is the first home buyer wants the home and they're going to say, look, we're going to go Where are they going to get the money from? 
It's a first well, home buyer. We'll have to go back and get a bank and, and get a reval <laughs> yeah. and get a new contract approved. And I think that's what you're going to start to see. These issues are really stuck because the, the business is going to say, why would I want to build these if I'm going to lose money? Um, and these these are the pointy conversations. And it's it might not have, they might not be able to get away with it six months ago, but now with all the, the news around building companies going under and, you know, the fear and they can potentially just dr- delay it. There's, there's causes in their contract that they could say, oh, we can't get there and, they can say, well, we can pro- if if we can't get more money from you, it's not we're not going to build it anytime soon, and you know leverage like that's going to start to play out. So it's a, it's a really um, yeah tricky situation for builders at the moment. Because a lot of people think, oh, you know, it's good for the first home buyer, but if they it's only if they get the house at the end of it, right? Um, and it's built to the quality that they were promised, and they didn't get shortcut on materials because things like that are going to start happening, right? Well, if you have to have a fixed price contract are you going to use that type of wiring or are you going to go for the cheaper wiring you're going to go for that type of tile or you're going to go for this tile and that's going to happen so you're going to get it already low quality generally it's going to get to get built cheaper uh, and any cutbacks you know are going to have to be made so it's not going to be great for our housing mm. uh quality at yeah the end of it. i guess like one ray of light <laughs> is that some of the detached builds are starting to, to come off a little bit in New South Wales and Victoria. Um, so the building activity data from the ABS showed showed a little bit of a decline off um, massive highs, mind, but um, through the December yep. quarter, um, some of the houses under construction came down. And I guess that makes sense if we think about the home builder cutoff in March mm-hmm. last year um, and commencement having to start within six months or, or 12 months or whatever they extended it to, that's finally starting to come off a little bit in the pipeline. And it's like that that bulge that's kind of got to, that we've got to mm. move through. Um, but yeah, it's just such a massive challenge and I don't know, I mean, I guess the government would need to focus on facilitation of those builds coming through as well, especially from like an affordability perspective, if we want to talk about easing the market with more mm. supply as well, just just getting, Well, yeah. that is, and that is one of those two signs pointing in two different directions, isn't it? You know, you you, you need supply to ease affordability on, on rental level as well as, um, you know, first home buyers. And then, of course, if you can't deliver supply because of inflation and supply chain issues and, and you know, shortage of staff, all, all those um, <laughs> other economic issues that come into play. But the other thing too, of course, that the, one of the reasons the governments just suddenly stimulate the building industry in, in you know, the early days of COVID is really because of the, the I guess, the, the great leveraging effect of the fact you've got, what, a million employees in the construction industry, it's it's a significant a portion of our economy. You know what I mean? You, you you stimulate that, and everything kicks over just nicely. You know, every every dollar spent, there's you know the knock on effect and the the what do you call it? What do you econo- economists call that? Yeah, the multiplier the product. The multiplier. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you can see why they did it. It was just short, sharp, well, quickly, desperately you know, grasping a whole bunch of straws, what's going to make the biggest impact and, and how can we me- get money flowing into the economy quickly? But, yes, without much thought about the long-term impact. Um, and so really given that we have a rental crisis, given that, you know, the immigrants haven't yet started really returning on and uh, mass, given that, you know, we do have an affordability crisis on a number of different levels and we've got a supply crisis, um, oh, I don't know, what are some of the 
what can happen? <laughs> what do you think could happen here? I, I mean, for me, a lot of it just points to short-term pain in the rental market in particular, if we consider that overseas migrants are typically yeah. renters when they get here. And mm. who knows how COVID will affect their settlement patterns, but traditionally it's mm. been in a city, Sydney, Melbourne, Um which we're still at quite high vacancy rates in apartments. Well, in so the city, funnily in enough, Sydney, Melbourne. Melbourne's been a really interesting example where this very international city had rental vacancy rates, the, the inner Melbourne market had rental vacancy rates peak at 15%, which is huge. Mm. It's corrected. Yeah. And, it, and it's since corrected to under 2%. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So it's like wow. between, yeah. I don't know, people moving to inner Melbourne to take up those cheap rentals and vacancies, investors selling off, um, the, the start of the return of migration. It's one of the most extraordinary <laughs> rapid wow. corrections in the market yeah. that I think I've ever seen. And it's only, it, it could be amplified by, by increased return of overseas yeah. arrivals. So mm. I see that that is kind of the short-term pain point. And, again, you get the reactionary population stuff we talked about, people adapting to those higher rents, moving around. And then if we look at yeah. um, so the Australian Construction Industry Forum, they produce forecasts around dwelling completions. CoreLogic does a little bit of work with them in terms of supplying uh, some of our construction data in that space as well. And they're forecasting detached construction to peak um, – this year and mm, um, yeah. apartment construction because apartments take a little longer to go from origination to completion that to sort of peak uh, midway through next year so by the time we see all of those completions play out that might help ease conditions a little combined with the rising rate environment slowing demand right down new approvals are going to slow down if if nothing else because of higher interest rates but no doubt compounded by all the stress in the construction industry at the moment um so i think i think it'll sort of just ease off but yeah there is definitely some short-term yeah. pain i know that we've seen um you know quite significant reductions in mortgage applications across the board um and which is to be expected when you've got interest rate rises or even just the talk of interest rate mm. rises let's face it you know the jawboning beforehand so we've seen that, but we then get used to it, don't we? We get used to the interest rates as to wherever they will be. You know, we've all been used to different levels of interest rates. I mean, we'll, all of us that have owned property for been around for a couple of decades anyway have, have have got used to interest rates at certain times. I mean, I've been used to interest rates close to 10%. I've been used to interest rates at 6%, you know, and, and certainly loved having interest rates around 2%. But you know, we'll get used used to it again if it's at five, whatever. We will get used to it and we'll just kick on and our lives will continue and we'll go back and we'll borrow money and we'll mm. upgrade our houses and we'll do what we just do. And I guess human behaviour will take a, a while for that just to be the new norm, right? And so I actually read a report, uh, an article written by the Kook, um, which went back to the last four. It, it looked back at the last four rate hike cycles and it looked at prices one year two years and five years after the first um increase and then after the last increase in each each of those cycles and overwhelmingly prices continue to go up you know there's some there's a, a couple little dips but the dips are small in in the whole 
scheme of things. Now, I'm not one of these property people say, oh, prices always go up because at the end of the day, you buy an individual property, you're not buying an entire market. But it is interesting just to see that we do seem to get used to it and get on with it. Yeah, I mean, I guess the difference now is that debt levels are so much higher than they were over, you know, yep. historic decades when, yep. when he's mm-hmm. doing that analysis. So um, we've, we've done some scenarios where markets are currently pricing in a uh, lift in the cash rate of 4%, which I don't think is likely, yeah. but, you know, you're talking about thousands of dollars added to the cost of a mortgage mm. each yeah. month on off the back of that. So I think it, you've always got to consider not just what's happened historically, but what's a bit different this time around. And mm. I think, you know, there's no... I, do people get used to that interest rate setting? Yes, I think they do. I think we saw that even through the current upswing where growth rates were falling when the cash rate was still at 0.1%. Um, but, you know, as, as you say, we are in that softening period at the moment and everything from clearance rates to days on market to listings volumes to the home value index itself is pointing to that decline and it's been accelerating. Yeah. Um, so I guess another consideration about the cash rate and property prices is how quickly the cash rate is moving, how many successive rises or cuts there are, because those can all have varied impacts on the cycle as well. Mm. Um, just something to keep in mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's so much volatility, right? With unknown, right? Whether it's an election or whether it's your job or whether it's you know people don't like making decisions when there's not clarity, right? And so I think. Until we have a you know real comfort, you know rates increases really slow down, um, prices fall a significant amount, then people start getting a bit more opportunistic, and they say, well, actually, I'm no, I could have bought last year for this price, but now it's this price. Oh, actually, you know what? Yeah, rate prices could fall further. So, you know, as prices fall, more demand's actually going to increase, um, and also supply's going to reduce as well. You know, I mean, I know you said Veronica that sales have been very similar. That the quality properties will come on the market less because people want say, to hold Why on would to I sell them. this now when I Yeah. Um, I mean we we upgraded our home last week, right? A counter cyclical against the market, but we know that that property we purchased, if this was in a hot market, there's no way that would not sell off market. Um, it would go to auction. Um, and go to an auction, try to buy that in a hot market, no chance, right? And so um, you know, and that's that's the, the reality. We know that even if prices do fall that property would probably fall less um, and it already has fallen a little bit. Um, and it's just going to be harder potentially to buy something in a downturn. And so, you know, people are going to be, if you're, for example, they're being picky, they get six to 12 months into their search and they haven't bought a property. They're going to finally just say, well, we have been looking for six or 12 months. Yeah. Prices are falling, but nothing's come on. And this is the stuff we're starting to see with clients is they're saying, we still want to buy, but we've, we just can't find anything. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually going to get harder over the next year. And, they, and they, they're reading the news that prices are falling 15, 20%, and then, but they can't buy property. Um, and so, because nothing's coming on. So I think that's what we're going to start to see is that, you know, at some point the, the, the swing flips back, rates stop increasing, um, confidence, people just get on with their lives, like you say, Veronica, um, but they do change their budgets and they do change what they're willing to stretch for. And so we get repriced to the, higher rates rather than to 2% interest rates, which we did last year. Um, and uh, it's just, we're in that sort of transition at the moment, like this peak fear. Um, and, and that's what we're starting to see in equity markets. That's equity markets are a good sign of consumer confidence and where, and that's why we've seen such big falls in the last week is because fear is really just taken off right now. But at some point 
the fear sort of subsides. Yeah. I guess the other thing to keep in mind too is at the national level, we've looked at what a 20% decline does to values and it takes you back to where prices were at the start of 2021. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> again, yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah. not, only recent buyers and that's not nothing. There's been a lot of recent buyers. Transaction activity has been really high over the past couple of years. Well, about 600,000 yeah. yeah. sales over the past exactly four months. Exactly right. Yeah. So um, it could affect a lot of people, but at the end of the day, it is more recent buyers that are affected, um, depending on what city you're in, of course. Mm-hmm. If you if you go back 20% yeah. in Perth, then you're back to like 2006. But um at at the national level (laughs) and across some of those smaller cities like brisbane adelaide areas that have seen a big boom um it it doesn't do too much to the equity position of most home buyers um in from from that stability perspective i think you know recent history for me is is quite telling and that recent history is what the city property market did between the middle of 2017 and the middle of 2019 and and i think we can look to that it's is recent history it's not that long ago everyone seemed to forget it in 2021 now they're all thinking it again you know but you can't pay people to buy when it's the best time to buy you just can't, you know, like no one wanted to buy in 2018. Freaking awesome time to buy a property in Sydney. Awesome time. Those people would have made whopping great gains, you know. But trying to time the market is a mugs game for starters because most people won't do what's best for them, you know. Um, but as Chris said to you, you know, you do have that challenge of trying to find quality property in that time. But, you know, if you're active and you make the decision, I'm going to actually now take advantage of the fact that when I find that quality property, I will be fighting with less people. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And you are. And that's, that's what we do in our business. You know, we literally bought a property the other night. Uh, we've been looking for these clients a bit longer than I'd like to, you know, but they came on board, I think it was July, August last year. So it's, it's taken us you know, a good 10 months to buy for them. And yeah. not for, not for want of giving it a red hot go on a number of times. We were the un, we were the bridesmaid more times than I really want to count, but we still had to, to call it off, you know, say, no, it's not worth paying any more than that. Um, yeah. But we bought this property, a really good cracking house. So excited for them. Honestly, it was worth the wait. And we got it for less than we probably would have had to pay had it come on last year. But big part of that was because they they really quoted it too high they mm. they really quoted it and and if the agent doesn't get the quoting right then they miss the opportunity to build competition and it's a much yeah. more sensitive market to that so we just saw an opportunity in the fact that they had to pull that to cut the quote by 10 percent and it's like brilliant we got to buy it within the range that we priced it oh, like it was a great opportunity and i just think that it had it been handled differently um, it would have sold for more money. And so you could say, oh, that's falling prices, but that's actually a campaign that just missed the mark. You know, the agent yeah. got it wrong, had to correct, and it's very costly to get it wrong in this market. And so that's some of the ways in which it plays out in that that the market's not very forgiving for those sorts of yeah. things. Um, so, yeah, and, and this is the thing, being in the market and understanding that gives, gives insights into how you approach it, what you do, but still trying to get people to buy and make commitments in a falling market is nigh impossible. You know, like our, our, I think our total – our annual revenue went down like fifty percent. You know, from the from the peak to the to the trough, it, it probably yeah it was yep. probably about fifty percent down. Um, yep. Yeah, so that's so just Eliza, what happens. Besides, um, yeah, you know, interest rates, inflation, 
maybe migration impact. Is there any other things that you think that are really affecting that and maybe borrowing capacity? What was what were some of the other things that you think are really affecting the market? Um, you know, and, and whether it's maybe it's consumer confidence. I mean, that's like, like Veronica said, you know, the time to buy index is at its all time lows pretty much, you know, like it's that's that's fear, I guess, in the market. What other things <laughs> are you thinking um, in there that are sort of weighing on people's minds? Yeah, consumer sentiment is a big one, um, which is at near um, GFC lows yep. at the moment. It's yeah. Yeah, yeah it's pretty crazy. highly correlated with sales volumes and it comes back to what you were saying earlier about people not wanting to commit to big financial decisions when they don't feel as confident about their finances. So a lot of that comes back to interest rates, inflation. It comes back to higher cost of living, uncertainty about you know global economic and, and um, conflict um, events. So, yeah, that, that is a really big one. Um, affordability constraints, of course, which, which is tied into it all as well. Um, and yep. Yep. I think, you know, at the moment we're still seeing a lot of listings accumulating on the market in, in some markets more than others, but it is happening. Yep. Um, Hobart looks mm. like it's finally starting to turn. We're seeing an accumulation of, of listings there at the moment and days on market yep. are sitting uh, at about 25 days for Hobart where they were nine days this time last year. Wow. Mm. So some pretty dramatic changes happening and I think it really does come back to the credit environment at the moment. Um, and, and the pricing yep. of credit. I guess there could also be some of the government policies that we saw over the course of the pandemic period, maybe concentrated demand brought it forward. So when you're bringing forward, for mm. example, first home buyer demand or, you know, the, whoever was taking up home builder, that could take away some of um, who starts to buy in the current phase of the cycle. And Australia is interesting like that. We've had a lot of volatility in our transactions relative to, um, I, I would say, some of the larger um, countries like the US and the UK. When you compare sales volumes, they're, they're sort of relatively steady, um, whereas Australia has some pretty big fluctuations. I think those are the main mm. things and I think that it's, yeah. again, just part of the design. It's It's part of the way that the transmission of the cash rate works in reducing consumer demand and thus reducing inflation. Yeah. One thing we're really seeing, we're really seeing around uh, price of credit is um, a lot of people think their mortgage repayment is solely based on their interest rate, but it's actually based on how long have you got left on your mortgage um, and plus mm -hmm. the interest rate. So uh, the shorter time frame, you know, if your mortgage has been five, ten years old and you get increases to your interest rate, um, then you're going to feel the pain a lot more. But if you're, for example, refinance that mortgage to another 30 years, then that'll reduce your repayment, which will offset the increase in interest rates. And so I think what we're going to start to see as interest uh, prices of properties have gone up, it's the ability to refinance is, and um, people have paid down their mortgage. They got a bit lazy with it as well because you know, they've yep. done other things. Um, and the loyalty tax is getting bigger. So the, they start looking at these interest rates and go, well, I've, or maybe they fixed. So they come off this fixed rate. They've got a 20-year mortgage. They've stayed with their Westpac for the last 10 years. Um, but then they go, you know what? I'm paying a pretty poor variable rate. Why don't we refinance? And why don't we refinance to another bank and extend our loan term for 30 years? And that will really reduce their repayment, which will offset increases in interest rates. And so it, the banks are freaking out at the moment because um, you know, I was at this conference and chatting to all the heads 
um, this week and uh, I was asking them pointy questions and they were like, you know, didn't know what to say. Um, but, you know, they've got all these fixed rate loans coming off and they've got all these customers that are wanting to refinance and that are going swapping banks, they're literally swapping colours and they're getting better deals and lower profit, becoming lower profitable customers to the banks. Um, and it's going to happen on mass over the next couple of years. Um, and so not many people are thinking that through, you know, in terms of the impact of interest rates because they're saying, well, interest rates are going to go up, everyone's going to be in pain. Well, no, everyone's going to refinance their mortgage their mortgages <laughs> onto longer loan terms um, and then get a better variable rate in terms of a discount, which is going to offset the increase. So you can actually reduce your interest rate maybe 50 to 80 basis points just by refinancing to, to the best deal in the marketplace today, um, if not more. And so even if interest rates go up, you know, 50 to 100 basis points, well, that doesn't matter because you just got yourself saved that in interest rate by swapping banks. Um, and so, yeah, that's something that's thing. The other thing we're saying is um, we've got a lot of clients in the tech sector um, and uh, the tech sector hasn't been doing very well, uh, right, in terms of their share portfolios. Um, so they work at Twitter or they work at Atlassian or Google or Facebook, etc. cetera. Um, and, you know, one thing that gave them confidence to take on big mortgages and gave them the deposit for that was their portfolios in the tech sector. Um, and they've been absolutely smashed. And so I think equity market falls also correlate quite strongly to, to residential prices. Um, and so I think that's going to start to have an impact. Um, and even things like Bitcoin, um, you know, <laughs> Bitcoin's 30,000 now versus 80 plus, right? Um, we've got uh, quite a few people coming into the market over the last few years who have made a lot of money in crypto. Um, and, you know, those sort of things. So that's what's been really torpedoing the market up is equity markets rising as well because people have been making money there and putting it back into to property and people selling businesses you know like you know if you try to sell out of private equity in the last few years you would have made a lot of money for example if you started a business and sold it but you know play, like canva for example it's no worth nowhere near what it was worth last year and so that's also affects the top yeah. end so i think there's lots playing out in the market that um is as this downturn increases they start to you know, yeah multiply. that's so interesting you say that as well because there's a lot of that's some of the theory behind why the top end falls first as well, even um, yeah. compensation structure of people who tend to be in more wealthy areas of a city if their compensation is more tied to bonuses or, or firm performance or whatever. Um, yeah, so I don't I don't know that there's anything rigorously demonstrated, but, the yeah, I think those um, anecdotes and, and those kind of yeah. stories definitely tend to track. Yeah, the interesting thing about wages and bonuses, we're not really seeing that too much. If anything, we're seeing the opposite. So when I'm tracking these, they're getting pay rises. They're yeah. swapping jobs um, because they, you know, when you swap a job, you go for more money, you know, generally. Um, and so mobility, I think it's going to pick up. Un low unemployment and people have wanted to stay in their jobs through COVID. Mm. They've got the confidence now to swap jobs, especially if they're not giving the flexibility they want, et cetera. And so we may see these, you know, more wage increases just because people are swapping jobs but maybe their share portfolios are going well, maybe, mm. the, you know, et cetera. So maybe the company's still doing well financially and can keep paying bonuses. And so it, it's, there's so many levels to it. But, um, you know, I remember yeah, at the beginning, the beginning of COVID, the lockdowns there and the share market tanked, of course, in, was it March 2020? And I, and I had some clients that were looking at the upper level um, for their homes, you know, uh, high $7 million budgets, those sorts yeah. of budgets. 
Now I said to them, well, look, this will be interesting because if people are relying on if I, if your competitors in this in this price bracket are relying on money from shares or converting money from their share accounts or whatever uh, to help fund their property purchase, they're going to be out of the market. You know, they're going to be really severely impacted. Their borrowing capacity is going to be impacted. Their actual deposits are going to be impacted. But you know what? That segment of the market actually, I think, was stronger at the beginning of COVID, in my experience anyway, that upper end, despite the fact that the share market tanked. You know, it yeah. just sort of it was really interesting. I thought it has had zero impact. Um, in fact, potentially a, the opposite impact. But anyway, that was just because that was what I expected to see happen and it certainly didn't play out that way. Yeah. Anyway, Eliza, have you got a uh, copy <laughs> Dumbo for us? So we probably asked. <laughs> I know, and it's so hard. It's, it's like a whole. Uh, it's a herd of elephants you need to give us now. Um, but um, have so you got one for it's us? it's tricky because, like, I think for my demographic in Sydney, I still don't know that many home buyers. You know, um, but I do, mm. if you would allow, have a bit of a property savvy story. Um, Ooh, a friend of mine who, who um, purchased their first home with their partner, which was um, ha- had their heart set on Gladesville and could not get in, missing out at auctions, feeling devastated. And their partner's saying, let's look in ride. Let's look in ride. So for people not in Sydney, I guess it's kind of comparing like a bridal and a bridesmaid area kind of. Would you agree? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And are they looking at apartments, houses or apartments? Yeah. So okay. this, yep, this, yep, yep. My, my friend, they're getting really upset. Their partner looks at them and, and they sort of say, I can't believe we can't get into Gladesville. And the partner says, well, imagine how you're going to feel in five years' time when we can't get into ride. <laughs> so that was the mantra that, that they repeated to themselves and they bought a home in ride. They've renovated it. It's beautiful and they're really happy. And I thought that was a really interesting oh, piece good. of perspective and something that I'll definitely yeah. take with me on my property journey as well. That is yeah. a classic. So, just <laughs> so they bought an older apartment, just um, getting a few more details. They bought an older apartment. Correct. And it's like uh, 70s yeah. or 80s yeah. by the looks. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Not one of those, okay, new, two, those new monstrosities. Two better, but it's a good size for the two of them. And a, the, the, the partner's a builder bed, yeah. as well. So the work, the work that they've done on it is just gorgeous. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Excellent. Yeah. I, I've got a actually a Dunbar I can add to that, which is about Gladesville and um or, or in that area anyway. We had a student on home home buyer academy who successfully bought her first home in Gladesville as an apartment, and she um in the process of negotiating there was a, f- a number of buyers on it, and she's had to pay over a certain figure. And the owner, the Dumbo is that the owner of the property had was living overseas and hadn't realised there's a threshold over which if the property sells at a certain price, they have to pay a much higher rate oh. of tax. And so they ended up working that out afterwards after like it was in the cooling off period, I think, and then they had to renegotiate the contract. She got it for less than she offered because oh, right. they brought yeah. it back underneath <laughs> the threshold. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so talk about someone almost accidentally having to pay a bunch of tax they, they you know, could have avoided, but the classic that she got to buy it cheaper because of um, – so I don't know if the Dumbo is the government putting that threshold in, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, not phasing it in. The, the owner themselves listing the property and not understanding their obligations, it's a good example of people not getting advice from the people they need to get advice from before making these big decisions. But uh, I just thought that was a classic story. And good news for the buyer. Just 
Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And maybe we need to change these from uh, property Dumbos to maybe, a, I don't know what we're <laughs> going to call it, but, you know, the good news stories. We've maybe done 250 Dumbos. Maybe we need to start talking about the positive wins um, <laughs> rather than all the negatives. So thanks so much for coming on, on Eliza. Um, we're obviously going to get you coming back soon on some other reports. So um, we'll leave that up our sleeve. But, um, yeah, thanks awesome. so much for coming Thanks on. for having me, guys. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.